Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. Our guest today is Danielle Evans, author of our January book club pick, The Office of Historical Corrections. We talk with Danielle about her incredible collection, completely spoiler-free. So if you haven't finished the book yet, don't worry, no spoilers. We're just trying to get you excited about next week's in-depth discussion with Disha Filia. If you want even more discussion around the Office of Historical Corrections and all of our book club picks, consider joining the Stacks on Patreon. That's a website where you can contribute monthly to help me make this show. In exchange for your generosity, you earn perks like our virtual book club. Once a month, I get on a video chat with other members of the Stacks Pack, and we discuss the book and the episode in more detail. If that sounds like something you'd be into, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks and join the Stacks Pack. And here's a little shout out to some of our newest members. Heather O'Rourke, Kira Nelson, Colleen, Dinah Colbreth, T.A., Ellen Winecki, Liz, Heather, Grace Wheel, and Erica Smith. Thank you all so much again for your support. I really could not make this show without you. All right, now it's time for my spoiler-free conversation with Danielle Evans. All right, everybody, I am here today with Danielle Evans. She is the author of The Stacks January Book Club Pick, The Office of Historical Corrections. Danielle, oh my gosh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This is really a treat. Um, I always love when we can have the author of our book club pick on the show. I just think it provides so much insight. And I'm going to try really, really, really hard not to spoil anything. And I'm going to try to not (laughs) ask you any questions that will give any of the stories away. But just know that I want to. Um, So we'll start where we always start, which is in about 30 seconds or so. Can you just tell us about the book? Yeah, um, it's a short story collection of six stories and a novella. And I think thematically, they're all to me about correction, apology, kind of reconsideration of the record. And in a couple of stories, that's a really literal question um, about history and Um, both personal and national and kind of revisitation of who got to tell the story and how it got written down. And sometimes it's a more subtle question of how we think about the past and what we inherit, um, how we inherit narrative and how that sort of shapes who we are or who we want to be. Yeah. I mean, I I always ask that question and every time I'm always blown away how well the author can distill the book down because in my mind, I'm like, it's about a million things, but (laughs) I mean, you nailed it. And of course it makes sense because you're on a book tour and it's your book and you've had a lot of practice at this point. (laughs) Yeah. But I'm always like, wow, they do such a good job. (laughs) Story collections are tricky though, because sometimes you're, you know, trying to find the through line, but hopefully everything is also doing its own thing. And so trying to describe it as one project is... Right, right. Well, that's sort of my big overall question for you. And, you know, obviously you'll speak for yourself and not everyone who's ever written a short story collection. But my big question, and while I was reading this book, it kept coming to me, which is how are you 
thinking about putting a collection together? Are you writing 20 stories and then pulling the six that fit together? Or are you writing with this idea of correction sort of in mind? Are you writing and you realize, oh my gosh, there's something missing. I need to add a story. Like, how do you think about the collection as a finished book? Yeah, I think, I think this is true of how I've heard most people describe working on a collection. So not to declare myself the boss of short story writers, but I (laughs) think this feels fairly universal is that at first you're just writing stories. I I think it would be in the same way that like, if you set out to write a novel, you don't necessarily set out with a theme most of the time Um, that that can easily kind of kill the work or make it feel too heavy handed too soon before you're trying to sort of get to know the characters you're writing and figure out what might happen and learn the landscape. Um, And so at first I'm just working on stories and I'm working on every story on its own terms and trying to understand what those terms are and sometimes working very slowly. Um, And so I think I didn't know that this was a collection until I was more than halfway done. I sort of, you know, I'd said, Oh, I'm working on a collection once I had a certain number of stories published, but everything I would say about what that collection was, was just something kind of off the top of my head or something that I had to Mm. sort of write in some academic language for, for my job. But, um, then I would go back and look at the work and say, like, that's not quite accurate. I don't actually know what, what the collection is yet, but um, we'll, we'll get there because we're writing stories. And I think that when I finally um, had about, I had six of the stories done and I had said all of these things. At one point I was, I said, this is my project about the present tense. At one point I said, this is my project about the Midwest. At one point I said, this is my project about whiteness. All of those things are in the collection, but it's not really or exclusively about any of them. So right. um those had all sort of failed me as descriptors. And I wrote the second to last thing I wrote for the story, which is um, a story called Why Won't Women Just Say What They Want, which was one of the stories that's sort of more explicitly about that question of revisiting records and kind of ownership of story. And then I had a moment of clarity where I saw that that was a more explicit version of the question I'd been asking in a lot of the other stories and kind of understood the through line of the book. And once I understood that, I was also able to turn a novel that I'd been working on for a long time into a novella that somehow was the bridge between the two projects, that it was the Mm. thing that I'd been writing all this time. And it was also um, another kind of very explicit framing of the question. I realized that a lot of the stories had been circling. And then only kind of once all the stories were together, did I understand what the book was about enough to like develop any language around it. Um, And I did an editing think about you know, especially in story order, think about, well, what are the recurring questions of this book? How do I want to start the book? Where does the book end as a whole project? Kind of, if all the stories are in conversation, I want them to feel like they're talking to each other, but not necessarily saying the same thing. I want them to feel like you start the collection in the story that introduces the most things that are kind of come up again, um, even if it also feels self-contained, and then kind of end in a place that circles back to a lot of those questions, but feels different. And in the middle, I'm just sort of thinking about not making the shifts in between stories feel either not enough or too abrupt. Like I want every story to feel like you've entered a new world on its own terms, but I also don't want there to be sort of very jarring tonal switches between stories if I can help it. So a lot of that sort of order in the middle is just thinking about the experience of reading the book and reading the book as a kind of long conversation. Um, I did cut one story because it just felt like... you miss it? it? Not really. I felt like in order to fit in the story story collection, it would need to be a lot longer and it would need to be, um, I thought I was going to do like balance work for one of the other stories. And then I thought I would have these two stories that were kind of speculative and one would be kind of more dystopian and one would be more utopian. And then my utopian story kind of took a turn. So um, I felt like I didn't need balance <laughs> after all. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I, I'm glad that story, that story has been published elsewhere. It's, you know, published online in an anthology. And I felt like I liked the version of it as it existed. And it didn't make sense to try to turn it into something else to fit it into this project that I felt like didn't ultimately need it. Wait, so which one is the dystopian one? Uh, the novella. Oh, okay. Okay. I was thinking, I'm like, hmm. Yeah, it's not quite. Extremely dy- it's like loosely dystopian. <laughs> it's not quite dystopian. Barely. It took a turn toward dystopia from like what I'd initially thought it was going to be. 
Um, and actually, and then a lot of the things that I had sort of predicted as dystopian ended up just being real by the time it actually got published. So. Well, that was sort of my question because, you know, I think one of the things about books that's always so interesting, and I think it's true in movies and television, but for me, a book person, I think about it all the time. I know that authors work on their work for a long time before A, it ever even sees an editor, let alone goes through the whole process of being published and all of that. And then by the time it gets to readers, you know, it could be like on a really fast turnaround, I don't know, a year, but usually it's multiple years of work. So when there's things that come up in these books, like your book, that are truly just something that happened yesterday, like, what does that feel like as a writer? Do you feel like, holy shit, I nailed it? Or are you sort of like, <laughs> Ugh, it's too on the nose? Yeah, it depends on the thing. I mean, sometimes you're horrified and sometimes you're just mad. And sometimes <laughs> and sometimes you do feel like prescient. Um, but yeah, I was I was actually a little upset. I mean, I was I was upset about a lot of things this summer, but I was sure. um I was it was when there was that whole conversation about Juneteenth and people having history wrong. I was like, right. oh no, because this was supposed to be like a joke to signal that we were in a slightly different future where there's this kind of bakery that's celebrating a gentrified Juneteenth but doesn't actually know the context right. for it. Um, and that was like a signal. And I was like, it's not even going to read as a signal anymore. It's going to read like I revised the book like two months before it was published to try to like be topical. Right. <laughs> um, but I mean, I felt like it didn't fundamentally change the terms of that story. It was one of those things where had it not been in galleys already, I would have like frantically snatched the book back and tried to make it slightly different because I wanted it to read as a marker that we were in a different world and not as an echo of our own. Um, but it was too late. So I decided right. to live with it. And um, and I don't think it fundamentally, I think there's still plenty of ways that you know that we're not quite in the same reality in that story. Um, and right, also that the, the larger questions of the story don't really require their own reality. Like the larger questions are um, the same questions a lot of us are asking ourselves anyway. Right, um, right. There, there were other stories where it was, it was a more troubling kind of negotiation. Like I wrote, there's a story in the book that involves um, a Confederate flag bikini. And I wrote mm -hmm. the first draft of that story in 2013, um, maybe mm. 2014. But, um, and then, um, you know, there were a couple of horrifying incidents that, that made us as a country reconsider our relationship with Confederate iconography. Um, and I wasn't sure where that conversation was going. And it wasn't my intention when I wrote the story for it to be a commentary directly on that conversation. I thought, again, that sort of its larger question was about kind of race and power and, and again, who a story belongs to. But I worried about it being sort of read into a discourse that I hadn't intended. Um, and also I was like stepping back from the conversation a little bit just as a person and kind of trying to see where the conversation was going. You know, I'd written about... Um, I, I you know, grew up in Virginia. I went to a high school named after a Confederate general. I um, wrote a story that was about the sort of irony of a high school that was mostly students of color being named after this particular icon in my first collection. So it was something I've been thinking about for a very long time. It didn't feel topical to me. Um, but I also realized that like other people would read it without that context. And so I held on to it for a while and I thought about how to sort of set it in a context, um, partly just to date it, to make sure that it didn't feel like I was trying to sort of intervene in a present argument, but to sort of set it concretely um, in a period before that conversation had happened. And I don't know actually fundamentally whether we've, you know, I feel like every time we have some radical breakthrough in the conversation of race, it feels often alarmingly temporary. So I'm not, right, right. I'm not sure that we've actually... Um, changed much in terms of the way that we think about that part of the U.S. past. Um, my high school did change its name, so that was a surprise. Wow. Um, actually, the school board wrote to me because they'd had my essay that I'd written like when I was 16. <laughs> like, we just want oh you to gosh. know, <laughs> um, which was sort of um, wow. delightful and unexpected. But, um, but in general, I didn't think the world had changed enough that the story would be unrecognizable. And right. I thought it had enough of its own operative questions that it wouldn't feel like it was just a commentary on a topical debate. But I did wrestle with that. Right. I have to say that story um, is is my favorite one. I think that was my favorite in the whole collection. It just really, I thought it really worked now, you know, and I don't know what it used to be or what it 
you know, what you were grappling with, but it worked for me. I, I just, that was a story as I was reading the book that I was like, oh, this collection. Oh, okay. Like, it, you know, because as, like, as you were saying, you kind of want the collection to build and you start talking about things that you talked about in previous stories in different ways. And by the time we get to, um, to that story, I was like, yo, this is <laughs> like, I here I'm here. Like I was fully, I was fully okay. with you by that point. So it definitely worked at least for, in my humble opinion, which, you know, who cares, but that's what I think. Um, well, obviously <laughs> that story. <laughs> well, I mean, people pretend to care. They more just want to hear me be, they more just want to hear what you say. They just want to hear my questions. They don't really care about what I think, but that's fine. I don't really care either. Um, but you mentioned this earlier. You were talking about how you weren't quite sure what the collection was as you were writing it. Is it your collection on the Midwest? And you said on whiteness. And I do want to talk about this idea of writing white characters because I think so often the question comes from the other side, which is like, can white people write people of color? Can they write black folks? Can they write queer folks? Like, what does that look like? Can straight people write, you know, like whatever that is. And I'm curious because I think that you write white people. I've not, I don't know if I've ever seen anyone who's not white, I guess, um, or I don't know. I don't know what you identify as, but write white people in this way. And I'm curious if what that's like, how you think about it, because I do think that people of color, black folks especially, know white people better than they know themselves. And so I'm curious sort of how you approached it. And I'm specifically thinking of Claire from that story, um, that the Confederate flag story. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, there's a larger answer, and then there's an answer more specific to that story. So I'll try to give you both. Um, okay. The the larger answer, I think, I mean, my my new answer to this question when I get asked it by by white writers or by writers who want to write outside of their group, and they're like, "Can I do this?" Is I don't know. Can you? Because I think that fundamentally, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, yes, it's a it's a political question in the way that all craft questions are are political on some level, but fundamentally, I think it's a it's a craft question before anything right. else, right? Like the the way that I understand character is that you have to understand the difference between someone's inner life and someone's outer life, right? You have to understand the difference between someone's interiority and someone's exteriority, the difference between what they think and what they say. And that's how you get complexity and that's how you get nuance and that's how you get the capacity for surprise that kind of creates a narrative engine because you don't know what somebody's going to do if there's a conflict between what they want and what they're saying. Um, right. And I think that a lot of people's understandings of people who have less power than they do, or even people who they just don't spend a lot of time with is very surface level, right? They only sort of know the exteriority. And so mm. I feel like if you've never been in a minority in a setting with a group of people you're trying to write about, if you've never heard an in-group conversation between a group that you're trying to write about, it's probably going to be very challenging just to to get it to feel like good characterization. Um, mm. And I think that often it's going to be challenging in a way that you don't even know what you did wrong. And so it feels like an attack when people are saying, oh, but this doesn't ring true because it rings true to you because you only know half the story. Right. Um, <laughs> and so right. I'm, I'm skeptical of work that people want to do on the page without doing in the real world. Um, and I think, you know, if you, if you aren't in situations, and I think that most of the time when people have a life where they, they are often not the sort of dominant group in a situation, they get used to reading those signals um, yes. And so it doesn't mean that like you're biologically destined to not be able to write about certain people. But I think if you if you're not in that position in your life ever, if you're never not around people who mostly share your race and class and orientation, like I'm skeptical that you want to write a character that you don't want to interact with in the real world. And um, wow, that's such a great point. I've never heard it quite put that way, but yes. Right. Because I, I think oh. it's it's either like a it's either a power thing where you're like, I don't like people that I can't control, but I'm gonna control this, or it's like a less sinister you're only writing this to be relevant in some way. Like you're afraid that if you only write about the, the actual world that you spend time in, people will say, Oh, but this is like a niche text. But people say that all the time about all kinds of beautiful books, right. you know? Like you'll survive that. Like right. you'll survive being labeled as being from the bubble you're from just like everyone else did. <laughs> And so right, right, I right. think that, that that is part of the larger question for me is about motivation, about context. And I think the context of your life tends to show up in the work. And if the context of your life is completely white or completely straight or completely whatever it is, 
or even everyone you know who's like not a member of that group is someone who like works for you or a child or someone who you have some sort of power over um you need to be careful about just like thinking through how you're going to layer that character and kind of what other kinds of input you're getting and not necessarily like tapping one of the people who works for you on the shoulder and saying like read this for me and tell me if it's offensive but like actually thinking about what other kinds of ways you can be a party to people's in-group conversations enough to get a sense of what they don't say to you. Um, I still have to say that I think that most people of color have some sense of how white people talk to each other because right, a right. lot of our contexts, um, you know, even if we never experienced that in our actual lives, which would be challenging, all of the media would sort of signal to us um, what what that feels like. And so I didn't feel necessarily like that was a challenge. I felt like the challenge of that story for me was that I'm trying to say this without giving too much of the story away, but I do think part of what I want for the shape of that story and the shape of several stories in the collection is to kind of invoke and then problematize a kind of easy narrative about empathy. And so that character had to be not necessarily sympathetic, but first of all, she had to feel alive, right? She had to feel like a real person. Right. So it wasn't just that she was there to sort of make a point or serve as a as a magnet for judgment. But I also felt like her interior narrative of being in that story, the victim had to ring true to her. And also there had to be some pressure points to see around it. But because it's a story that's closely from her point of view, it was it was most of the revising it was thinking about how to get those pressure points in the story that let you say like, mm. oh, maybe I should problematize the ways in which I want to understand or forgive this character because there's an erasure in there. Um, and so the balancing act of that story was trying to write a story that was in some way explicitly about white privilege, um, but also writing a character that people would identify with enough that like there could be a real examination and also writing characters who were not white that you could sort of see existed in the story, but were being kind of pushed out of it. Right. Um, and so that was the balancing act there, because I do think there's also a way of writing about racism where people who assume that they are not racist will read the story and say, oh, yeah, this is a terrible racist character and not see themselves in that character at all. Um, yeah. And so writing a character that people can sort of see something in or see a willingness to forgive or excuse and even if they're not white um and then kind of wrestle with that instinct was the balancing act i was trying to go for in that story yeah yeah that makes a lot that makes a lot of sense this is sort of a shift actually it's a huge shift but it's something that i always like to ask folks who write fiction about which is how do you name your characters (laughs) um yeah, and I wish I had a better answer. I feel like <laughs> everyone uh, says that back to me every time I ask it. They're like, um, "I don't know. I wish I had a better answer." I'm like, "No, I'm always love the answer." Um, yeah, I think that sometimes names are just really about sound to me because I often mm. do not often, but I sometimes do change a character's name, but it almost always has to have the same number of syllables. That if I try mm. to change the syllables, it throws off the story somehow. Um, which is sometimes fun because you do a fine replace. Like once I tried to change a Phil to a Carl and accidentally infected the city of Carladelphia. So um, <laughs> careful with your fine replace searches. Most of the time, I feel like most of my characters' names, they're not like a name, you know, sometimes a name announces something about this person's context. Um, right. And I feel like if anything, my names maybe signal a generation. Um, but I, I, I did, there's a character named Cassandra that I thought was fun because she's a historian and also anxious about the future. And so um, that was a kind of deliberate invocation of a kind of larger context. Um, a lot of the times I'm just trying to think of a name that feels like it suits the rhythm of the story and like it suits that character. And I don't, re- I rarely change the name of a primary character. I think somehow I have to know what that person's name is before I can write them. Um, I do sometimes change the names of secondary characters because as I get to know them better, I realize the name somehow didn't suit them. Or sometimes I just end up with, um, especially in a story collection, because you're writing them far apart, you realize you have two secondary characters with the same name. Mm. So like 
right up to the galley. I think it made it into the galley, but like every version before that, there were two Charlies in the collection. And then I panicked on um, the, the final sort of copy <laughs> editing notes sent them. And I thought, oh, God, I have to change this name. And I was so afraid that I was going to pick another name that I'd accidentally used for a secondary character. That I that I went to one of my list of names that I – they're, like, names I don't use because they're associated with people, like, so intensely in my actual life that I'm, like, I'm never going to use this name. But I went to the list of, like, problematic names. Um, and so um, – <laughs> because I used to know, like, three problematic Joshes, but I don't know any of them anymore. So I was like, okay, he's not Charlie anymore, and now he's Josh. Because I know that I've never written a Josh because I used to know so many problematic Joshes. So, oh, my gosh. I um, love that. Do not use lists. But yeah, um, I try to avoid names that I have like strong, intense personal associations with. And other than that, it's just kind of trial and error or luck. I think that's a great answer, actually. It's one of the most detailed ones I've ever gotten. So I appreciate you taking the time to answer this question, even if you thought it wasn't a good one, because I really liked it. No, no, it's a good um, question. I just don't know that I have a good answer. <laughs> thank no, you. no, I meant that. I meant like your answer was really good. I liked it. <laughs> I approve. I approve. Um, okay. So... One of the themes that popped out to me in this book that I don't think we've talked about yet, but I thought was very present was this idea of sort of grief and the ways that women can experience loss and how they can carry loss. And I was wondering if that was something that was there from the beginning or if that was something that kind of took shape as the collection came together. Yeah, I mean, it was probably there from the beginning, but one of those things I I didn't know was there from the beginning which seems very mm. very obvious in retrospect like that I was writing this book <laughs> while my mother was dying and I was writing about grief but I think that mm. like a, a lot of the writing gets done because your subconscious doesn't show you what you're doing until it's already done I think right. I, I said in another Q&A someone asked like how do you know a story is done and I'm like you know that the story is done when it's tried to kill you and failed <laughs> but I, I kind of <laughs> I was being a little tongue-in-cheek but I mean that and that I think that for me the most interesting part of a story is not always the ending but the moment a couple of beats or sometimes a couple of pages before the ending when the story kind of breaks open and reveals to you what it was actually about and I think I like that moment because that's the moment when I get to be surprised right like as I get closer to the ending of a story in a first draft by the time I'm I'm nearing the ending, I sort of know how the plot is going to conclude. But the part where I realize what the story has actually been about all along is often surprising and bewildering to me. And then often I have to like revise heavily to to do what it turns out I was actually doing. Um, but I like that moment of kind of revelation or breakthrough or when the submerged part of the story comes to the surface. And so mm. I think um, what was one of the things that kept coming to the surface in the stories was grief and, you know, perhaps understandably, but I, I wouldn't set out to write a story about grief. I would sort of get there and realize that's what the story was about. And in fact, some of the revision was in bringing that to the surface. Um, and the, the first story in the collection was supposed to be an essay originally. I'd promised Roxane Gay an essay. Um, mm-hmm. And she did say I could write an essay or a short story. And I said, essay, like I have so many things to say about the body because that's what the issue was. And then I had nothing to say about the body. So um, that I could say in an essay form. And so I sort of sheepishly sent her a short story, um, which um, which I think was it, it was almost finished um, when I sent it to her and when it originally was published. But when I went back to it, um, it was also much longer than than what I was supposed to have sent her. And so I was trying to condense it. But I also think I was still not ready to get to the sort of actual sort of embodied grief of the story yet. Um, that would have been in the essay that I thought that I was writing. And so when I went back to revise, that was one of the places where I slowed the story down um, was um, in the scene where the character has to sort of actually watch somebody die and deal with her own grief and the physicality of that moment. Um, And so some of the revision was recognizing what the stories were about and having to kind of go into it when in the first draft I tried to maybe protect myself from it too much. Hmm. Does that happen for you frequently when you're working kind of on these different stories, right? Like each story is its own world. It's our own people. Um, You know, it's this whole, you know, you're working towards something on each story. Does it ever happen that, you know, you're writing story number four and all of a sudden whatever happens there makes you totally rethink and want to revise story number one? Or that something you put in story number one all of a sudden doesn't work now because it fits better in story number four? Or are you able to sort of keep 
the stories separate in your mind. Cause it's sort of like you have like six or seven plates spinning at once <laughs> in a way. And, and they have to be like, if you were writing a novel, let's say you might have multiple ideas going at once, but you're not necessarily presenting them next to each other. So you could have time to kind of make those changes. Whereas if you're writing a short story collection, you have these plates spinning, but you eventually have to get them all together on the same table. So how does that balancing act work as far as revision? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think because I wrote these stories over a long period of the time of time, I did write them um, one at a time. And so for the most part, um, for the most part, once the story is done, I'm like, well, that belongs to that story. Like, it's published. It's in the world. Mm-hmm. Even if I'm going to revise it later, I'm not going to take something from it and give it to something else. Um, I don't know. I Now that you've asked that question, I'm like, why do I have that role? That's not necessarily an inherent role. But I feel like <laughs> the story can, can, can change and adapt on its own terms. But, like, I'm not going to tell that same exact story again or steal its material for something else unless I was somehow going to throw out the story and start over. But if it exists in the world, I'm probably not going to do that. So... Um, I do think that thinking about how the stories fit together, sometimes it's really tiny stuff. Like, um, there were two appendectomy scars in the first couple of stories in the collection. And I was like, well, they can't both be appendectomy scars. So it's right. like a change that <laughs> if you were just reading like both versions, like the originally published version and the book version of the story, you'd probably be like, why did she change that to a different scar? Like, it really doesn't matter. Um, right. But it, it really didn't matter in that story. And it did matter that it was an appendectomy scar in the other story. And that's why. Um, and there are other changes that are that are partly because I'm revising the stories in some cases so much later than when they were first published. So um, the story, the earliest story in terms of when I wrote it in this collection is called Alcatraz. And that's a story that I'd originally written. Actually, I wrote the first chapter of that in graduate school in like 2006. And Mm. I held it for a while because it was a story that of all the stories had the most kind of actual and it's, it's very much fictional. Let me be clear, but it had the most actual family history in it. Um, just in terms of what I'd borrowed from. And so it's the only story I ever let anyone else read and say, like, you can approve this or not. And if you don't approve it, I will never publish it. Um, and my mother read it and she um, liked the story very much. And so it was published in a journal, I think, the same year that my book came out. So in like 2010. Um, but then I was going back to the story and, you know, like 2018 when I was doing revisions, um, when my mother was dead and she couldn't read whatever I was going to do to it next. But I also... Um, felt like I wasn't necessarily the writer who'd written that story, you know, mm-hmm. 12 years earlier. Um, right. And so I was trying to sort of fit it into the book without changing the terms of the story. And luckily it already had this retrospective frame. So I kind of leaned in to the character gaps to try to sort of echo my own gaps between the writer who wrote the original story. And some of it was just kind of cleaning up things that I would have I hopefully am evolving as a writer and like would have caught on first draft, like sort of tightening up some sentence level things and um, some backstory that was more complicated than it needed to be for purposes of the story. Because I think I was still too attached to the actual backstory in the original Mm. version, but some of it was kind of spiraling out a little bit and thinking about the passage of time and letting the passage of time play a role in the story and giving it more room that way, instead of trying to make it sound more like the other stories in terms of content um, trying to make it sound more like the other stories in terms of voice and and an and engagement with history that was always present in the story but became more present when there was more looking back. Yeah, I'm very interested in that idea of over time how these things kind of move and change. Um, okay, I'm going to ask you to do something that I'm sure you'll hate, but we'll just see <laughs> how this goes. Do you have a favorite story and do you have a least favorite story? And if you're comfortable, will you name those two things? Yeah, you know, and I'm not even trying to be difficult. I really don't. I think part of why That's okay. I like part of why <laughs> I like being a story collection a story writer is is that I'm fickle, you know. And so right. <laughs> things change from day to day. And also I feel like sometimes people are like when you order a collection, you should order it from like your strongest story to your least strong story. And I'm like, why are you putting your least strong story in the collection? Like if you don't at least genuinely right. believe that everything is as good as everything else, you don't have a collection yet. You need to keep working until and throw some stuff right. out. So I, right. you know, I'm sure that I also, I mean, I think that that's my experience of the book and also that this is a, a weirder book than my first collection. And so I think, I think if you read my first collection and like loved anything in it, there probably isn't anything that you would like hate. 
Whereas I can imagine mm-hmm. that if you read this book, there might be a story you love and another story maybe you don't hate, but that you like find weird. And I think that that's okay, that this feels like a slightly riskier, more experimental book. But like, from my perspective, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it in the book if I didn't think the risk was working. I also sort of anticipate that the range of reactions or the range of the range, the way that an individual reader might react to individual stories might be more different in this book than the first book, um, which is okay. I think that's part of the project. I love that answer. One more question about the book and then we're going to take a quick break and we'll talk about other things on the other side, but I'm curious how you decide what, how to title the, the whole book. Is there ever a question of maybe I will title it something that's not a title of one of the stories or the novella? Or are you sort of, did you know what it was going to be going in? Yeah, um, for a long time, just because I had a collection of stories and often they are titled after a story. Its working title was Boys Go to Jupiter. Um, but just because I liked the sound of that. But then when I actually, mm-hmm. that was before I sort of arrived at what the stories were actually about. And so... Once I was sitting down with a manuscript, I was like, this doesn't actually make sense as a manuscript title. Um, right. It doesn't really gesture toward the whole project of the book in any interesting way. And so um, I titled it The Office of Historical Corrections. At that point, um, the novella was still in draft form. And in the draft form, The Office of Historical Corrections was actually the name of the agency, and it was a more speculative story. And then when I revised, um, it became... Not quite realism, but but it veered closer to realism, and and I was like, well, they're not going to actually name this agency the Office of Historical Correction. That's, <laughs> like, right. That's, right. it needs to at least be plausibly like the name of something that the government would call something. Um, and so I changed the name of the Office of Historical Corrections to the Institute for Public History, and changed a lot of the sort of terms of exactly what the job was, and tried to ground it a little bit. And um, and so I had sort of snuck in the Office of Historical Corrections as this like running joke about their sort of like their evil twin agency or their shadow agency. Um, and I thought that it worked, but I was a little bit afraid that someone was going to call me on that and say, like, you can't just sort of stick this in as a joke so you can title the story that. Um, but it did make more sense as the title of the story because I felt like it was a more interesting thematic title than like the Institute for Public History, which sounds like. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> drier and so it sounds I, like a government agency <laughs> I felt like as a title it was it, it prompted the kinds of questions that you want a reader to have when they see a title um, and um, so I wanted to keep it and I wanted it to be the title of the book and um, and I sort of at one point did have to sort to argue a little for that but I think um, I won that argument in part because there were like no other good titles <laughs> um, that it seemed to so clearly encapsulate the book the only other um, what else did we float? Um, I think there's a line in the first story. What was it? I can't even remember it, which maybe is a sign that it wasn't a good title. Um, but, um, but I did, I tried really hard and I know I was like, I'm going to send this list back and they're going to be like, you are being passive aggressive and only giving us terrible titles because you don't want to change the book's title. But I really wasn't. I was trying my best and no one else came up with anything better. Um, oh, all it up with danger. That was, there's a line in the first story. Um, um, but, um, but yeah, nobody liked that title. Um, and then, um, and then I thought about, because the, the, the epigraphs are, um, are really beautiful. Um, they're from Lucille Clifton and James Baldwin. And, um, so I thought about what was the line from the epigraph that I was thinking about, but I couldn't use it because my first book, Before You Suffocate Your Own Full Self, was titled after a line from the poem in the epigraph. And I was like, you can do that once. Mm. But you can't do that twice. Then people will just be like, why can't you title a book on your own? Um, (laughs) It could be like your thing. Like Danielle Evans does this. This Yeah, and it's like either you'd have to do it forever. Um, You'd never be able to title a book because, um, oh, this past was waiting for me when I came. It was also a long title. So, so yeah, those were the closest I got to alternate titles and they didn't really work. So I'm glad they let me keep my sideways way of getting the office of historical corrections in as a title um yeah but i think it's both it it, it spoke to the theme and it also um which i think is the theme really of, of all of the stories but also the sort of question of correction and apology that's that's in a lot of the stories um and it does sound i mean i think the concern was that it maybe sounded a little bit speculative but i do think that i did also want to signal that this is like a slightly stranger book than my first collection. So mm. I wasn't bothered by the idea that it might sound 
um, like you were sort of being dropped into something that wasn't entirely realist. It is mostly realist, but it's not entirely realist. Right, right. Yeah. I, I love the title. So I'm glad that it worked out for all, for me and for you and for your team. I'm glad, <laughs> glad we came to a title that we all could agree on because I really love it. So, um, okay, we'll take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk about you. Okay. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC. All right, we're back. Okay, so I want to sort of know about you as a writer. How did you know you wanted to be a writer? Was it something that you always wanted? Was there someone that inspired this in you? Or was it something that you sort of realize? Sometimes authors come on the show and they say, I didn't even know being a writer was a job. And then I figured out that it was one. So sort of what was your relationship to becoming a professional writer? Yeah, I think you just stole my answer. Oh, no. <laughs> um, thanks, other writers. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I did always write and, and um, I always wanted to write books, but I, I didn't know that was a job. So right. I um I thought that I would do something else and like also write books. Um, I grew up on a lot of mysteries and legal thrillers. So I think I had this idea mm. that I'd be a lawyer who like wrote novels. Um, and mm. then I uh, took one political science class in college and I was like, enough of that. Um, <laughs> so um, yeah, I, I sort of went to college with a life plan and then, um, and then I ended up majoring in, in anthropology and creative writing, which were, closer together than one might imagine in terms of being about attention to the world and attention to narrative and attention fundamentally to the way that people understand themselves and understand the structural rules that govern whatever they're trying to do or wherever they're trying to succeed. Um, and I was lucky to have some, some really great undergraduate teachers and um, 
in retrospect, I realized sort of uniquely lucky because I think that undergraduate fiction classes, especially especially for women, especially for writers of color, can be rough places. Um, mm. But it was also the first time that I felt sort of challenged as a writer. Like, I mean, I think I also felt, oh, writing is something I'm good at. Like, writing is something I do, and then I get praise, and then I continue to do it. And it was the first time <laughs> that people had sort of <laughs> demanded that I do more. And and while being very encouraging, said, like, no, but you can, um, you could be better. And I was like, oh. <laughs> Um, okay. Uh, and so I, I think that I, I, I don't mean to downplay that I think workshop can be a really traumatic space for people, especially early writers, but I was really grateful for that space because it was the first place I felt, because I had so much affirmation for my writing that it was the first place that I felt challenged, um, and also yeah. affirmed, which is a balancing act. And I think a balancing act that as a teacher, it's sometimes tricky to, to get right. But, um, I worked on, um, my undergraduate thesis and I still thought um in retrospect this this is a sign of my faith in the universe being um or at least my belief that I lived in a slightly different universe than the one that we actually live in but my <laughs> my practical life plan was I was going to get a PhD in anthropology so I could be a professor because I still didn't really understand how a writer was a job with which you could pay your rent and I think that that right. is still an ongoing challenge um <laughs> <laughs> and so even for many people who have successfully found writing jobs. And so I thought, well, this will be a stable career path. I'll get a PhD in the humanities, <laughs> which again, um, right, right. I don't know why nobody stopped me from having this plan. But, um, you know, I was working on my graduate school applications and I just couldn't do it because you have to write that essay that's like, this is why I want to spend the next five years of my life doing this. And I couldn't make it convincing anymore. Um, I sort of <laughs> discovered creative writing and that was all I wanted to do um so I went to graduate school for creative writing instead um and um and yeah I mean I think that I I feel like it's almost not useful to tell like the step-by-step -step story because I've had the kind of career where things fell into place at the right time the, the right place at the right time I think what I what I will say about that is that I also know how narrowly some of them did not keep like how narrowly some of them fell you know I know how close they came to not falling into place um and so I've tried as much as possible to prepare myself for a world where I always had to have a backup plan um and mm. thankfully I I haven't had to use it and I've been able to have time and space to write both of these books and I've been really grateful for that um but yeah that was a long way of saying I have no real other talents so I'm glad this worked <laughs> Well, if you had to, since we're just in this hypothetical world, what would what do you think you'd do if you weren't being a writer? Do you huh. think you would go I mean, and get like, that PhD or <laughs> not so much? <laughs> um, probably. I mean, I think limited to the actual, assuming I'm not actually getting any new superpowers on the 21st, um, limited to the powers I actually possess, I think that would be the best use of my talents would, would be um, – to, to I would have probably gotten a PhD in anthropology or history and seen where that got me. And I probably would have needed a backup plan for that too. So, um, sure. you know, who knows what, what, whatever, where I would have ended up. I, I think, um, left, you know, if I had any talent in that regard, I, I would, I would love to be a photographer, but, um, Ooh. but I have no real visual eye. Like I, I know what I like, but I don't know how to do it. So, yeah. Um, yeah, sure. I think, I mean, <laughs> all of my other kind of creative admirations are for things that I have absolutely no skill set in. Yes, that, I think that's correct. I think I, that's where I am too. I have a lot of dream jobs that I have zero qualifications for or zero talent in. But, you know, like one day I'd love to be an investigative journalist. No clue how to do that. But one day I'm going to be like Carl Bernstein or whatever. I'm going to expose some great scandal and I'm going to win a Pulitzer. And that's like definitely something that's on my to-do list right after flip the laundry from the washer to the dryer type thing. Yeah, I think journalist was on my career list when I was younger. And then I realized how much you have to talk to people to be a journalist. I was like, oh, oh. no. See, I like talking plan. to people. Yeah, I just have... don't know how to do the journalist part. <laughs> like the writing part, no clue how to write. Like I'm not for me. But the, the asking the questions and harassing people till they tell me what I want to know, that I feel like is definitely in my skill set. But I think you need both parts, unfortunately, to be like a real, you know, Bob Woodward or whatever. Um, when you're writing, this is, I mean – People who listen to this podcast know this is my most important question that I ask everybody, which is how do you like to write? 
Um, where are you? How often do you sit down to write? Are you listening to music? Do you have snacks and beverages? And that part's the really important part. Um, do you have <laughs> other rituals? Are there candles? Are you in the dark? Are you in a bright room? Is it 5am? Is it 8pm? Like what is sort of your writing situation like? Yeah, you know, I don't have, I don't have a routine in part because I don't have like a set schedule in my life. And when I'm really writing, like, and I'm really excited about something, or I'm in the middle of a draft, I tend to write in the middle of the night because it has the least distractions and like just on my couch with my laptop. And I, I you know, I'm so zoomed in on focus. I don't have, I don't have food or snacks or coffee because it's the middle of the night, you know, but, um, <laughs> But often that, you know, that's when I'm sort of in the middle of something that feels inspired. And often I'm not in the middle of something that feels inspired when I'm just trying to have a writing day. Now, this question makes me sad because I used to go to coffee shops and now I can't Ugh. do that. Oh. Um, but it would be a good way of, you know, especially because I do have long stretches of time where my job is just to write, where like between semesters or on teaching leave or just like, you know, I only teach two days a week. And so, you know, the other days of the week, what do I do with myself? And so sometimes even if you don't have a great writing day, it just feels better to know that you like put pants on and saw a human. Right. And um, <laughs> so sometimes I would get into a routine. I, I don't do mornings at all. So I would, I would, um, and I can't have coffee after 2 p.m. or I won't sleep. So I would okay. aim to like arrive at the coffee shop in that window between noon and two so that I could have one cup of coffee, which is all that my, um, all the caffeine that I can sort of tolerate and ever get any sleep and, um, and maybe some kind of snack. And, um, and I put a lot of effort into like finding the coffee shops where I could write because I don't like coffee shops where you can see the books because that feels like too much pressure. Even though I like that bookstore coffee shops exist and often stop there to get my coffee. Like I can't go there and write because I, I can't be like seeing the books while I'm writing. It's just, it's too right. much. Um, and there are also lots of coffee shops that you realize are like, people are constantly using the coffee shops for like job interviews or first dates and I'm right. nosy. And so I can't like go someplace where there's too much people watching, which is another right. thing that I usually find and fall in love with a coffee shop is then it closes six months later because I realized that what I actually found was like a place where I had a personal barista, um, <laughs> which is why like, <laughs> and even though um, I, I, I order snacks and tip very well, like I cannot unilaterally keep a coffee shop in business. So every time I find right. a coffee shop that I love, it closes. Um, so, yeah, I don't know how many coffee shops are doing these days, um, but um, I hope to to be able to find out again in the not terribly distant future. But I do think it's just like when I'm trying to jog something, like I usually won't get a whole story done in a coffee shop. But if I'm just like at a staring at a blank screen, I can go there and kind of work until I get the breakthrough where I'm like, ah, yes, here's where we are. And then I can take it home and get in my pajamas and stay up all night finishing it. Right, right. And I know that you said you wrote this book over years and sort of essays at different times. So this is maybe not, maybe not so specifically, but are there things that you feel like you were watching or reading or listening to that you feel like are sort of in, in the, in the book or was it so over such a varied amount of time that it's sort of, who knows? Yeah. I mean, I think I was listening to my enormous anxiety about the future. <laughs> um, and, I, and I mean that both, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there is part of what this book is about is grief. And the other part of grief is that you have to imagine how you live on the other end of it, right? That part of what grief does is make the future unimaginable because something mm. you thought was there or expected to be there um, is gone. And so I think that both kind of as a as a person who was, who was losing her mother, but also as as a human, as a black human in you know, the period of 2010 to 2020. Um, I was also, and also just as a person who like lives in an environment that is rapidly melting, right? There were all right. sorts of ways in which I think what I was actually writing through was um, an anxiety about the future, an anxiety about um, how to imagine the future when the future felt unimaginable. And I don't know that like the stories themselves are necessarily super or entirely optimistic on that question, but I think that, the act of writing a book requires you in some way to believe in the future, right? It requires you to believe that you're right. doing this for posterity in some way. And so um, I'm sorry, that's an abstract answer, but I no, think that okay. in some ways in terms of how it filtered into the book, that's what I was sort of thinking about. And that's how I was thinking about most of the media that I was consuming is like, how are we imagining the future right now? Right. 
for folks who love the Office of Historical Corrections, what are some books that you might recommend to them? Um, not necessarily the same, but something that might be in conversation or sort of dealing with the same ideas or topics or things that you just think pair nicely. Yeah. Um, I'm going to start with some story collections. Um, this year, there's um, a story collection called I Hold a Wolf by the Ears by Laura Vandenberg. Um that I sort of joked to Laura, I was like, I think this feels like if you gave two very different writers the exact same set of story prompts and saw what they <laughs> did, which of course is not what happened. Like we, I didn't see her book until it was done. Um, but I do think there's a similar kind of wrestling with anxiety and hauntedness and um, how we reconcile our, our personal politics with our human lives um, or with our sort of structural world. Um, so that feels like it would be good in conversation. I also think it's like a really wonderful time for um, short story collections by black writers. So um, I really loved Rian Scott's The World Doesn't Require You, which came out last year. Um, Janelle Brinkley's A Lucky Man, which came out a couple of years, um, a couple of years ago at this point. I don't know how time works yeah. anymore. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Nefisa Thompson inspires um, Heads of the Colored People. Um, mm. I think um, and I think you already mentioned Disha because she's going to be on on the podcast. Yeah. But um, but all of those collections are are really wonderful. And I think again, one of the things that I love about collections, especially by writers of color, is that they work against this sort of attempt to be reductive. And so yeah. it's 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 super nice to sort of um, I don't know. I love always seeing a writer's voice and seeing all the things a writer's voice can do. But I especially love the way a story collection kind of brings this range of characters um, when so much media sort of tries to flatten and reduce a demographic experience to like a single experience that it's a kind of yeah. living argument against that. That's such a great point. I never really thought about it, but I do think that you're so right on with that because I often, you know, I sit down to have these conversations with authors about their work and, you know, I, I listen to folks on other people's podcasts and other interviews that they've done. I try to, you know, watch the book events if I can and, it's true that when folks end up talking to short story writers, specifically uh, black short story writers, there it, it's a lot harder to sort of pigeonhole the person and their work, you know, because the stories allow the the author to say like, look, just because I'm black doesn't mean I'm this, or just because I'm a woman doesn't mean I'm this, and my work is able to speak for all the things that I am and all the things that I can be, and I I think that that's such an astute observation like just really sort of mind-blowing for someone who thinks a lot about books I've never really thought about it that way but I just think that's so right on oh, thank wow you. Well, let me put in a plug for a couple of novels because I don't want because sometimes I talk about stories and people are like you hate novels don't you I don't hate novels I love novels I um, hate novels don't worry this is a <laughs> this is a totally anti-novel space everyone knows I'm not a fiction person so it's okay to hate novels here <laughs> um, but um, Edward P. Jones is the known world, as I think, is in terms of stories that sort of wrestle with history and like the structural politics of history, a really beautiful book. Um, Toni Morrison's Jazz is, is the book that I probably reread the most, um, mm -hmm. alongside Mrs. Dalloway, which actually makes a really interesting pairing with it. But I think thinking about the sort of the way that people live in a kind of historical moment, but also in their own lives and, and mm -hmm. the historical moment in the wake of a kind of collective trauma or upheaval. Um, both of those books do that really beautifully. Um, and um, I've also been, not to give away too much in my book, but I've been teaching a course in the passing novel um, mm. this um, this semester and sort of thinking about um, why it seems to like be back in the 21st century. Um, you know, of course, there have been a, a couple of really big books uh, lately, like The Vanishing Half and... Um, now I'm blinking on like the other 10 books that got me to this course, but there've been a lot of them actually in like the last five or 10 years. And so I sort of wanted to go back um, and, and look at the sort of lineage of that. So um, in terms of other books that I find really interesting, I would, I would actually make a plug for Plum Bun, which gets overlooked a lot, I think in terms of Harlem Renaissance passing narratives. Um, but I think it's a really interesting book, um, both because of its approach to the passing genre, but also, I think that I read it this time and, and more clearly understood as rereading it the way in which it's a book about female agency and like the degree of performance required to find agency as a woman, whether or not you're also engaged in some kind of racial passing. 
Um, so I would, I would make a plug for that. Um, I also, um, uh, taught the vanishing half and Caucasia and Min Jin Lee's Pachinko, all of which were really interesting to put in conversation. Mm. So, um, and again, books that are sort of really interested in the way that political structures can demand a kind of performance that shapes your very personal and intimate decisions. Yeah. Okay. Very important question. What <laughs> is the word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Oh, um, strangely enough, it's disappointing. I always want to throw an extra P in there somewhere. It's an impossible word. I'm with you. <laughs> I cannot spell disappointing or disappointment. And you know what? I find myself trying to write that word more often than I would care to admit. And it's one <laughs> I'm with you. Any disappoint, any sort of disappoint is hard for me. <laughs> Okay, I don't want to put too much pressure on you, so you can definitely tell me to fuck off, but do you know what comes next as far as your writing? Theoretically, I know what comes next in that. I know what I've promised my publisher, which okay, is Okay, that um, works. which is a novel. And I and I also know that I think the one, you know, I think a lot of writing never gets any easier. That's not supposed to be because you're always supposed to be doing something that you're not sure you can do. Um, but right. the one thing that I do think I've learned in 10 years of being a writer is I should talk less about my work in progress, not even to be coy or mysterious, just because I think that like once you say, oh, this is what I'm doing, you start to feel locked into it um, right. before you've necessarily gotten gotten to the rules of the project on your own. Um, right. That the more you talk about things, the more you impose rules on a thing that doesn't have rules yet. Um, you know, it's like you can't really like assign logic to a baby. And I think like some projects just have a long infancy. And the more you right. start talking about, like, my kid's going to go to Harvard, the more you sort of, right. like, jinx the whole project. Um, not to not to impugn anyone who's That's okay. saying where their baby's going to go to college. Actually, I, you know what? Yes, I'm impugning you if you're saying that about your yeah. baby. Let your baby I mean, be a baby. But, um, but yeah. yeah, so I, I don't know. I, I, I know some things about it, and I don't feel like I know enough things about it to state them publicly. <laughs> That's fair. You, Yeah, that's fair. That's why I always like to give the out of you can say like, go fuck off because I know that some different people are in different places and I, I don't want to lock anybody in. But I'm always curious because sometimes people are like, oh, yeah, I turned in my book yesterday and it's coming out and this is what it is. So I always like to yeah, kind of those pry. Those people can but, fuck off. No, I'm yeah, those people, I mean, I'm kidding. I'm very definitely, proud of definitely those people. I'm always whenever people give me that answer, I'm like, oh, I see what kind of human you are. I don't think we <laughs> can be friends in real life. <laughs> You're an overachiever. Um, have you received any pushback on this book in any way? And if so, was there any pushback that you agreed with or did or felt like was totally off base? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's relatively new. So yeah, that's sort um, of why I wasn't sure. Not yet. <laughs> and I and also I, I I don't go looking for reviews, so I only see the of course, ones that, of that the editor sends me or that someone tags me in. And so, um, so yeah, maybe someone said something really mean about the book and I just haven't seen it, which is fine. Like, I think it's healthy to have discourse about books. Um, and it's not healthy for me as the writer to be like pouring over, you know, the Goodreads reviews, trying to sure. find the one person who didn't like it. So, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, okay. I don't know that I would That's see fine. it if somebody gave pushback. Um, my dad, okay. I think, is reading all of the reviews because he was very upset that someone gave me three stars. And I just had to be like, Daddy, you can argue with all the people you want on Amazon, but just don't tell me about it. Um, so, oh, my gosh. That's um, so funny. I don't know. Um, I don't know what their objection was. but um, That's so funny. Um, okay. So I need to get your dad on the podcast. You need to kidding. get him on the podcast and he will tell you um, what he's mad about. That's so funny. Okay, the sort of flip of this, and maybe you won't know this either, but has there been anyone that you thought was just like such a cool person that you know read your book or expressed excitement about your work? Yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 ex I don't want to sound like a dog, but I'm, I'm so excited when everyone reads, when anyone reads my book. And I sure. think that because I'd held on to this for so long that, you know, some of it was even just the first couple of blurbs from like, you know, Roxanne Kelly and Kristen Rebecca and Wiley, like, no one had read that book yet, and so that's oh, that feels to me like somehow the more, the more precious, nerve-wracking thing is like, will somebody say something um, nice about my book before anyone else has? Um, but I did really, in terms of the things that I have read, I there was a really beautiful review by Katie Wallman in the New Yorker that I felt like really kind of captured the project of the book. Um, there. Um, 
Alicia Keys has something nice about my book. Like Alicia Keys read oh, my book um, because okay. it was a book of the month club selection. Um, and and it's been on a couple of people's. I think that, and I don't even because I don't sometimes listen to things. So like I don't even know exactly what nice things people have said. But a couple of people have been like, someone recommended your book on the radio, and oh. um, it'll be some person that I have no idea how they even know who I am, um, which is um, kind of lovely. So. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I feel generally it's a, it's a charmed life to like have friends who you respect who are writers who will also read your work, and then when it goes beyond the world of writers to be read by strangers, kind of even more so. Yeah. Okay. This is my last question for you. If you could have one person read this book, who would you want it to be? Oh, I'm sorry to be sad, but my mom. That's <laughs> um, okay. That's that's a great answer. That's who I wish could read this book. Well, thank you so much, Danielle. This has been really such a treat. And again, I just loved this book. I just thought the collection was so beautiful and so strong and just really exciting and made me think in a lot of different ways. And it was not at all what I thought that it would be. Not that I knew what to think, but it was better than I could have imagined. And lots of people told me it was good, but it was better than those people said. They were like, somehow underselling it, which is a little annoying. Um, <laughs> I like when people tell me this is really good and you're going to love it. I hate when people are like, oh, I liked it, but I don't know what you'll think. I'm like, no, if it's that good, you need to just tell me straight up. Um, <laughs> and for everyone listening at home, as you all should know, and if you don't remember, I said it at the beginning, but this book, The Office of Historical Corrections, is our January book club pick. So I will be back with Disha Filia talking about the book um, the last week of January. And I believe it's January 27, but I don't have a calendar in front of me. So it's the last Wednesday of January. Danielle, this was such a treat. Thank you so much for your time and for this incredible book. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and, and for reading the book. And, and um, I'm glad that you liked it. I loved, I loved. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you to Danielle Evans for being our guest and to Claire McGinnis for helping coordinate this interview. Remember, the Sachs Book Club discussion of the Office of Historical Corrections by Danielle Evans will be on Wednesday, January 27th with our guest, Disha Filia. Please make sure you're subscribed to the Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our sound editor and producer. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagirgis. The Stacks was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 